The views expressed in this program are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of 94.9 CHRW. What is this? Our chronicle. The history of our village? Doesn't your village keep a chronicle? Not in this manner. Then how do you teach your children their history? Who their ancestors were, where they come from? We tell each other stories. Make up songs. Stories change with each person who tells them. But this, this will always be the same. Good morning, London. It is Thursday, April 26, 2012. I'm Bob Metz. And I think I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Where we're with you from now until noon. No, not right wing. Just right. Color into black and white. Under the and welcome to the show today, where 519-661-3600 is the number you can call to reach us, and you can email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And today on the show, Robert, we've got a couple of, I guess, two major themes. Your theme is more in the science department, I would say. You're going to argue about how God plays with loaded dice, does he? Well, plays unfair, does he? <laughs> <laughs> Some, and, somewhat, yeah. And you're also going to talk about... Uh, some of your own, your personal interest in astronomy and what's coming up new in, in the astronomical, up in the skies. Yeah, I'm always fascinated things, yeah. by astronomy, so I thought I'd talk about that. Why not? My radio show, I can do it alone. There you go. And I thought I'd start off the show today with uh, something that got me thinking about this subject, and I'm going to be talking about, I guess, the word it is written. If, it's, if something wasn't written, did it happen? You know, it's like the, if a tree falls in the forest and no one was there to hear it, did it really make a sound kind of thing, right? Because it's the sound of history, I guess, we're talking about. And, of course, you and I, we had a pretty busy weekend this past weekend. No kidding. And we were in Toronto at Freedom Party's Red Alert Dinner event where we had the unique pleasure of giving out Freedom Party's first free speech award to one specific individual who has certainly earned it, I think, and that's Mary Lou Ambrosio. And while my theme today is not about Mary Lou, and really about what was inscribed on her award, that's what really got me kicked off on, on my subject today, I do feel it necessary to explain why she got the award, especially because of our show here at CHRW on Just Right. And, uh, you know, yes, she's been a guest on the show herself a few times, but more importantly, it is to her that both Robert and I, and many of the individuals she has helped to get their opinions out, Oh, our collective thanks for having made so many opportunities and events possible. So, um, here's how many. If I was going to ask you, Robert, how many guests do you think Mary Lou had a role in get, getting us on the show? Just ballpark, if you were thinking off the top of your head. Oh, um, hmm. Uh, one, two. That's what's it feel like? Some, uh, I can think of five off the top of my head. Yeah, well, you better keep going. <laughs> Six. <laughs> Keep going past 10. Keep going past 20. Is that right? Yes. Listen wow. to this list. And in addition to Mary Lou herself, Ann Coulter, American lawyer, best-selling author, extremely controversial political activist, Lord Christopher Monckton, who was just on our show just in the past few weeks, uh, past advisor to Prime Minister Margaret Thatcher on global warming, and even the Sudoku X Games, 
Ezra Levant, when he was before the Human Rights Commission, Salim Mansour, Professor Christopher Essex, Paul Weston of the British Freedom Party, Mark and Connie Fournier, Mark Vandermas, Al Gretzky, William Gardner, Gary McHale, Andrew Lawton, David Aldred, Kim Ainsley, Chris Titus, Barbara Kay, Kathy Shadles, uh, uh, Geert Wilders, Arthur Mayur, Lars Hedegaard, Lars Vilks, and I think Clive Seligman, too. What'd you get? To, what'd you come to? I see you're counting there. Uh, I think that was what, 23. Yeah, pretty close. Or 13. <laughs> and I might have missed somebody. So thank you, Mary Lou, for all of those uh, contacts. Some of them, strangely, we knew ourselves before, but never mm-hmm. thought to bring them on the show till she she brought it up. And at the Free Speech Award on the weekend, which was actually handed to her by Mark Vandermas, because he was one of uh, three or four people who were at the dinner who were uh, basically victims of some kind of bad law or whatever. Mark Vandermaus, as a matter of fact, was arrested like about two hours yes, before our dinner. He even had the marks of the handcuffs on him. That's right. And you know why he was arrested? Because a native um, person chest-butted him on the street, on the public street, and uh, Mark complained to the police, and Mark was arrested. Mm. The native didn't get arrested, of course. There you go. But in any case, let's not get off on that path right now <laughs> but uh, people will be able to see see this I guess online not in the not too distant future the dinner yes yes and on the award read the, read the inscription for her dedication to the promotion and defense of freedom of speech and at the bottom was the inscription in the beginning was the word and that is really the subject of my topic today because a lot of work and consideration went into the choice of wording on that plaque and it wasn't until uh, Paul McKeever, after scouring quote books and we went through freedom of speech references for hours, told me he really couldn't find a better quote than in the beginning was the word. And the second I heard it, Robert, I knew it was the right one to use. It clicked, didn't it? It clicked right away. <coughs> so I thought I'd take uh, the first half of the show today to go on a muse on this uh, thing. I've talked about this in some ways in the past. I've got a lot to try and cover. I don't think I'm going to get to it all. But uh, to consider... That phrase and its profound implication of, of the concept and its attendant issues. If ever there was a word that is critical to the field of epistemology and to the field of knowledge, I mean, the word word <laughs> has got to be it, don't you think? Word. Yeah, so let us begin <laughs> at the beginning. Now, I've discussed religion and a belief in deities in quite some detail on, ba- on past broadcasts of this show. And as someone who does not particularly believe in deities, I tend to take a very secular view on religious writings, and in particular their interpretations. It's interesting when I said, in the beginning was the word, um, that wasn't what you said at the, at the outset of the show. What was it you said? In the beginning, God created the heaven and the, the, heaven earth. And the earth. Yes, I thought that was the first line in the Bible. Well, it may be, because the first thing I wrote was Genesis versus John, because uh-huh. those things exist in both. And um, I didn't realize until I went online, I, and I do this after I do my, my own opinions. I wrote them out to see how much they they coordinate with what I found online. It was amazing. Um, I went to this site where they had Barnes Note on the Bible, and personally all I could come out of it thinking was e plebnista. <laughs> you know what I mean by that, right? I do, yeah. Which comes from the Star Trek where, where people didn't understand the symbolism of the American Constitution anymore, and they were instead of saying, I pledge an allegiance, it came out e plebnista. The words weren't even clear anymore. And they argue that in the beginning clearly means before creation, before the world was made, as yet when there was nothing. 
And, uh, you know, it goes, the meaning is that the Word had an existence before the world was created. This is not spoken of the man Jesus, but for that which became a man or was incarnate, John 1.14. The Hebrews, by expressions like this, commonly denoted eternity, and on and on it goes, right? With all kinds of uh, what I think is a little bit of an incoherent set of declarations and assertions, some of them being quite contradictory. I don't think I'm alone in these disagreements with these assertions because, you know, there ain't no such thing as nothing, honey. Because <laughs> if there were, wouldn't that be something, right? <laughs> it's the old Jerry Seinfeld thing. But I found that the word, the word, that phrase, was used by followers of Plato among the Greeks. It was also used as a noun that was to denote the word or reason, the sense of reason. Uh, which was considered the first person of the Trinity. The term was also extensively u in use among the Jews and Gentiles before, before John wrote his gospel. And apparently, from what I saw, make a long story short, John was in a hurry to get his definition of the word logos, or word out, before everybody else did. It was like kind of getting first to the market so that your interpretation would be seen as the main one. And this gets into a whole biblical overview, which I'm not going to read, but just I just highlighted some things under the deity of Jesus Christ, because this sounded very much like the doctrine behind the association of truth and reason with Christianity, the way Lord Moncton talked about it on the show a few weeks ago. I recall when you interviewed him. Hmm. And um, it, it's amazing. I was looking at this. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. That's generally the version you see in a numerous interpretations in the Bible. And the other phrases you see is the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness did not comprehend it. The witness John came as a witness. He was not the light, but came to testify about the light. There was the true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. You see all of these uh, very you know, ambiguous phrases in some way. And so it struck me, and I talked about this in the past, that depends on how you look at the symbolism of, of early civilization and, and our early writings because the power of the written word was a power in and of itself because it was written. I mean, the written word was a rarity at one time. We didn't have paper, didn't have printing presses, didn't have ways of getting knowledge out to everybody. So, you know, it, it seems to me that people who look at <coughs> the mythology and legend of, if you want to call it that, of biblical history depends on whether you look at it metaphysically or epistemologically. And as you say, if you say in the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God, if you look at that metaphysically, which would mean literally, you'd be thinking about the creation of existence itself, right? That God created the heavens and the earth, as you say. Yes. But I don't think that's the correct way of looking at it. I think that's the error. I think the way is to look, if, if you want to attach any element of reality and what does exist to what we know, we take our knowledge that we know and apply it to these, to these legends of history, that the beginning refers to the word itself, and which is the beginning of conceptualization, of knowledge, of reason, which clearly is what separated man and humanity from the beasts and caused us to be cast out of paradise. Because when man ate from the tree with the fruit of knowledge, he was cast out because knowledge creates the necessity of having morality, doesn't it? Once you know what's right and wrong, you have to act on it or not, which is why so many people avoid knowing and choose to believe. And, you know, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was God. Now, while most would review this in a religious light, I see a profound secular meaning, not only in the quotation, but in the means by which it was popularized and made common knowledge. 
through a story in the Bible, the so-called written word. I remember when I first heard that statement when I was a kid sitting at Mass in St. Mary's Church here in London, and it got me thinking because something about the way it was written was both ambiguous and very clear at the same time, depending on how you looked at it, right? The first question I had to ask myself was in the opening phrase, in the beginning. And I really, I, I remember asking myself, in the beginning of what? Because it didn't really say, of time, of existence, of earth, of God himself. I've heard interpretations. Or was it the beginning of something else? Humanity, maybe, morality, maybe, or religion itself. Now, the rest of the phrase reads, depending on which version that you have, and Generally, they're all pretty close. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. So I think in this respect, the statement becomes quite clear. In the beginning was the Word. The Word itself marks the beginning. The Word is the starting point of something. What is that? And I think it's the concept of concept and of reason itself. There's a great secular meaning to that phrase because it's not only about free speech, but about consciousness itself. And I think that's why it was such a great thing to put on the inscription. <coughs> Let there be light. You know, that's another popular phrase you hear from a biblical reference. Some people would say, if they're thinking metaphysically, well, that's, of course, the sunlight or starlight, the explosion of the universe, the creation of all that exists. Or you could look at it epistemologically and say that let there be light means that we finally hit the point where we have the ability to conceptualize. In other words, the light of reason. Right? Let there be reason, let there be understanding. Exactly. And you do hear this interpretation, Lord Monckton being the one that we just ran into most recently. Now, this comes down to conceptualization, and Ayn Rand, of course, wrote heavily on this, saying that concepts represent condensations of knowledge, which makes further study in the division of cognitive labor possible. Concepts, and therefore language, are primarily a tool of cognition, not of communication, as usually assumed. Communication is merely the consequence, not the cause, of concept formation. The primary purpose of concepts and of language is to provide man with a system of cognitive classification and organization which enables him to acquire knowledge on an unlimited scale, which means to keep order in man's mind and to enable him to think. You know, last night my mom showed me a, a piece of paper that had a paragraph written out, all spelled wrong, spelled completely wrong. But if you put, in, put it in front of yourself, you could read it. It made perfect sense. I could read it fluently. And every letter was wrong, was all out of place. So my mother says, well, you see, you don't have to spell the words right. And I said, oh, no, that's not the purpose of the words. The purpose of the words is to organize language, knowledge. How are you going to look these words up in a dictionary? How are you going to put them in any order when they can just be made up willy-nilly? And that becomes the importance of language, the importance of permanence in something, so that knowledge can expand on the previous base. And that's the process we see. As Rand says, abstractions as such do not exist. They're merely man's epistemological method of perceiving that which exists, and that which exists is concrete. Abstract ideas are conceptual integrations, which deal with very real-life problems. In fact, in the Ayn Rand lexicon alone, in the lexicon, you know, that's the short-form summary, right? Over eight pages she's written on concepts and concept formation. And that's just a thumbnail view of all the various subjects. And so, you know, the complexity of the subject and of its implications can be overwhelming if you tried to absorb it all at once. And this is why I think that humanity turns so much to the use of the symbolic. 
and why we enshrine everything in our stories, why symbols are used instead of words, instead of numbers. Because symbols t- in society take many forms. You've got qu- from corporate logos, and think about that word, because the word logos means the word, <laughs> right? Uh, to physical objects, to people themselves. You know, the Jesus Christ we hear about in religious circles is really not so much a person, but a symbol, isn't he? A symbol of whatever he represents to the people who view him in a certain way, and that can be a lot of different ways. So the, the representation depends on another element, not just the symbol, but the cultural understanding of that symbol. They go hand in hand. You have other symbols, Martin Luther King as a person, or Terry Fox, you know, depending on what, what the issue is. And I think the most significant symbols in human discourse, in my humble opinion, are popular stories. The stories that we hear, you know, that's one of the reasons we use them on the show through all of our video clips and selections and things like that. Because stories, even the modern ones, become legends or stories born of myths, all of which are somehow intended to convey a greater meaning to a large number of people without those people having to have some sort of technical or detailed background or information or knowledge on the subject. I think that's the shortcut of the of the word, of the logos, of the symbol, using things as symbols, including stories. And of course, what's true about so many stories, you know, we, we know that ourselves, what do they usually convey? Some issue of morality, you know, a moral play. What is every, almost every Star Trek episode is one, isn't it, Robert? That's for sure. So, you know, in the absence of being recorded, you know, one used to be count upon the village elders to remember what they could of the past. They were sort of the uh, human memory sticks of their age, you know, and uh, to pass on information along to the next generation with the hopes it wouldn't be changed with each telling. And the danger in this was that a tradition may be established and adhered to long after anybody remembered why they do the original things that they do. So, uh, of course... Religious symbols abound, representative of as many meanings and interpretations as you can shake a stick at. So the question arises, how is one to guarantee some semblance of accurate and honest recording or interpretation of knowledge and of history? And I think that's the next part I want to get into on the other side when we start of of the break we're going into when we talk about a little bit about journalism and more about the logos and the word. But first, the first part of this clip is very interesting consideration something I want to talk about on the other side too it's from uh, the Lois and Clark uh, television series and in this scene coming up we hear Lex Luthor, the evil Lex Luthor discover that he's going to lose his you know, potentially lose his complete empire, his financial everything he owns, all because of a computer virus and the whole world is in danger of losing all of its information and its knowledge, you know, in, in this story. And I thought, you know, there's something real about that. Let's listen in, and when we return, we'll continue the conversation. Security has confirmed your suspicions. There is a virus. Say, no one is invulnerable. No system is guaranteed secure. And no time in history has the power of one destructive individual been so amplified. It is the ultimate terrorism. And I've often wondered, what would it be like if our entire infrastructure dissolved? Perhaps we are too um, 
dependent? Perhaps, you know, I've never thought of myself as dependent on anyone or anything, but I'm a slave. Nigel, like you, like everyone else, I'm a slave to the systems we create. What would it be like, a world without Luther technologies, no Luther industries, no Luther communications? Could I weather it, Nigel? It might be for the best. I could get back to nature, buy a pair of hiking boots, get in my car, a car without a driver, and drive as far as I could before I fell off the edge of the world. Could I? Would I? I think not. Yes. Quite right. And I wanted to see. See you later. Did you watch a briefing with Neelix this morning? Uh, yes. Yes, I did. Is there something about the program you disliked? I'm not sure I care for all the frosting. Frosting? Deck four. Recipes, music, jugglers. It's sort of like a steady diet of dessert, which is fine, but pretty soon you want some meat and potatoes. You do? When I was in school... I was editor of the Academy newspaper for a year. I monitored subspace transmissions. I got reports on some of the first activity by the Maquis against the Cardassians. I wrote an editorial about it, and the students became polarized on the issue. They debated the pros and cons and gained an insight into the entire history of the political rebellion. Now that's the power of journalism. Yes, that's the power of journalism. And I have to ask the question, if it wasn't written, did it happen? Because what do we really know of history and what real life was except by what was written? Well, it depends on whether or not you can trust what's written because somebody could write falsehoods. Very true. Very true. And it's interesting that, you know, anything we know about mankind's true past, religious, social, economic, or political, we know only because it was recorded or written somewhere. And many things have happened and have happened or are happening that were never written about and will never be written about, so no one except the few affected are even able to witness such events. And once gone, so too is any evidence of their story or their event. And speaking to your point, Robert, we even know a lot of things that didn't happen in the past, (laughs) (laughs) thanks to the fact that some fictional story was written somewhere and then sometime in the past which became accepted myth or legend maybe representative of something else. You know, they always say there's some truth behind every myth and legend, right? It had a, which means it had an origin, obviously. The, st- the legend itself does exist. Um, or thanks to the fact that some stories were told in allegory or symbol and were taken literally by some people. Uh, you know, some people today believe that Sherlock Holmes is real or was real. Yes, that's you know? right. Yes, they do. And who hasn't heard the story of Santa Claus? I mean... Well, not right. he is real. Yeah. <laughs> well, there was a St. Nicholas, apparently, but who knows if that's true, right? If you want to ask it that way. 
But, you know, again, I come back to the symbol thing. I think both Sherlock and Santa are symbols. Both have stories and meanings attached to them. I don't know what they might be <coughs> with Sherlock Holmes. Maybe logic, honor, um, discipline, you know, dedication to solving the case. I'm not sure. And certainly the spirit of giving and sharing with, with a character like Santa Claus. Um, but what if you had a differing view? You'd always be wanting to rewrite the story, wouldn't you? As was always the case with earlier versions of the Bible. And on the lighter side, I recall when London lawyer Jeff Schlemmer and I debated the character of Santa Claus on Jim Chapman's Left, Right, and Center. Do you remember that? And we were deciding whether Santa Claus was a socialist or not. And uh, it was all in fun, but the symbolism was all there. And it was a bit like our red alert. I was warning the parents and kids out there that Santa was truly a red. Watch out, look at that suit and all the talk about getting free stuff that just seems to drop from the sky and fall down your chimney, you know. <laughs> how, how different is that from anything that our politicians are promising? The us? difference is force. Yes. <laughs> he's an altruist, he's not a socialist. <laughs> well, I don't know. When I ask who's really paying for all those gifts that Santa promises in the end, I'm thinking, well, it ain't Santa. Slave labor. <laughs> right. Elves. Of course, Jeff Schlemmer took the other view. Um, Santa Claus was a greedy employer who forced his elves to work in a sweatshop. And, of course, the elves and reindeer needed to organize and form unions, force a postponement of Christmas and the like, you know, stick it to the man who was, of course, Santa himself. My goodness. <laughs> so you can see what symbolism can be taken to in, in terms of uh, you can have fun with it and, you can, and it can be treated very seriously and solemnly and, pardon the, the phrase, religiously as it is with many people. And this brings me to the point that Lex Luthor brought up just before the break there about, you know, I think we take paper and the written word for granted today in a certain way. I, have, I also share a certain fear about the fact that so much of today's modern history and knowledge and art has been made and recorded on electronic and process storage, whether we're talking about computer hard drives or other storage devices, film, videotape, audio tape, none of which on their own present their message or knowledge without the use of some device or process in order to see what that knowledge is. You know, you know what I mean? To bring the virtual into the actual, hard copy, if you will, uh, before which all of it is changeable at the push of a button, right? Because it's in the virtual world. Hard copy in this context, I think, would mean paper for print and photos, maybe canvas for paintings and portraits. But some medium that is instantly readable and, and, and more difficult to change and tamper with without some real talent and counterfeiting or fraud or something like that, which we, we have to acknowledge does exist too. And uh, certainly in earlier times, and to some extent still today, I think would include trees and tree bark, stone, clay tablets, and other objects that don't uh, deteriorate over time. So, uh, you know, I was thinking myself, what would happen if all of our current devices were rendered inoperable? Um, you know, all it would take is a power outage. What happens if the electricity's gone? Or a power surge. Or something like that. And all of a sudden, <coughs> everything is no longer available to us. Or obsolete, even. One of the greatest travesties in the world today is libraries. Libraries getting rid of their books in favor of electronic media. Yeah, I think it's uh, an error, depending, again, what it is. But some books, I think, should always be available in print. Um, you know, it, and you're right, that is happening. So I, I'm kind of worried about that. Not, and obsolescence is a part, too. I mean, you always have to upgrade even your older records because new technologies come along to read them. Mm -hmm. And so, I mean, how many people still have beta machines? <laughs> VHS will soon be, be gone. And uh, so, you know, and in terms of 
of um, preserving the past and preserving one's history and preserving things that are important to you. You know, I find uh, <clears throat> this could become a bigger challenge, something we haven't really expected that might come upon us sometime, and it might be a bigger issue than we think. You see, uh, you know, groups like Google and, and the big companies just collecting information like crazy, all on hard drives, all on this technology that could change overnight. And, you know, we're actually faced with a bit of this challenge ourselves. I know m myself, I'm supposed to be seeing an archivist over at Weldon Library. Isn't that right across, mm -hmm. across, across from us here, where we're here? And uh, because I want to talk to them about uh, the London Tribune. Remember that newspaper? That's an old one, yeah. And uh, I have every hard copy of it because it was originally conceived and published by Mark Emery back in, the, I think it was the late 80s. And it's a record of the city. It's got original news items, stories, many that broke uh, the news. And it doesn't exist in any form anywhere. So I want to bring it in for archivists here to make sure that someone is looking after that and uh, preserving it. And, of course, it'll be scanned. And that's another thing, too. We're, we've been doing that at Freedom Party, scanning all our original hard copy newsletters that were never printed or put on in virtual format. And they're now online and accessible to the world. So, you know, that's just part of the problems of the word, you know, all the things that I can read into it. Um, I was told by someone else that there is another issue coming out with energy and the space problem, and uh, just about storage and the maintenance of uh, knowledge. And you can get into the issue, if you want to, the whole process of discovering knowledge, how Newton would have gone about processing his knowledge, which is something I think you're going to be getting into in the next half of the show, are you, Robert? To some degree, science and knowledge Quantum and discovery, physics, Bob. Quantum physics. Which is going to screw with our heads, isn't it? I'm afraid it's already done mine, yes. Yes? I'm done. Really bad? Are you in good shape today? <laughs> because uh, I know we're talking about this, and uh, boy, some of the concepts you get into are very counterintuitive. Is that the word? That's exactly the word. Because I wouldn't guess them. So let's go. We'll take a break right now, and on when we return, we'll be getting into the field of some of the strange science that's out there today. All right, look, why don't you just see what you can do about it and then call me back, okay? All right. Goodbye, sweetheart. So, you know, this is the most complicated gadget I've seen you work on yet. Why is it you Martians are so far ahead of us Earth people, scientifically? Because we don't waste a lot of time talking nonsense on the telephone. <laughs> nothing but a camera. Exactly. It's a futuroid camera, taken from the nose cone of my spaceship. Well, I'm glad this is fixed. I couldn't get more than a couple of hundred thousand miles towards Mars without it. Well, what is the point of taking snapshots of outer space? Dear boy, these snapshots, as you call them, show what will be in the path of the spaceship at some time in the future. I've avoided some nasty collisions with this. Uh, now, just one second. Do you mean to tell me that this camera can take a picture of something that's going to happen in some future time? Well, now, I wouldn't expect you to grasp the concept immediately. You see, you Earthlings think of time as a straight line, like a road you walk down passing objects or events at different intervals. It isn't a straight line? Oh, yes. You're correct in thinking of time as a straight line. But you think of space as a mass. Actually, they are both straight lines and can be made to intersect at any given point. Uh, let me illustrate. You sit there. Right. Now, first we set the space line to go directly through you. Then we set the timeline for, say, uh, oh, 24 hours. Say Uranus. Uranus. 
Newton's third law of motion. For every action, there's an equal and opposite reaction. You push something here and it creates chaos where you never expected it. So I presume you're here about Pythagoras. Yeah, yeah, you, um, you sculpted him? Cast iron mold. The mold's on display at the Smithsonian as an inspiration to young artists. Well, I guess it'll be more famous now that it's turned into gold. Any idea how? Gold would never be my medium of choice. It's far too malleable. Huh. What do you know about alchemy? Some say it was the first science practiced by intellectual leaders throughout history. In the Middle Ages, it even incorporated an occult component, and many alchemists were burned at the stake. What's the crime in trying to create gold? The crime of trying to control nature. The age-old struggle between man and God. Huh. Anything like that at GD? The last of the known alchemists were Eastern European, but the fall of Hitler and the rise of particle physics hastened their demise. And that should save you the Google search. Yeah. Now, if you don't mind, I've got a piece in the furnace, so... Sure, sure. Thank you. Welcome back to Just Right on CHRW 94.9 FM. Broadcasting from the moderately pleasant London, Ontario. <laughs> moderately pleasant. What's that yeah. about? <laughs> <laughs> you can call us at 519-661-3600 to join our conversation. You can also email us at feedback at justrightmedia.org. And you can find us online on Facebook and on our website where we archive all of our shows, justrightmedia.org. So let's get into some quantum physics because, frankly, when I started reading this the other day, about quantum physics, I started to get lightheaded, quite physically, <laughs> because this stuff can can really throw you for a loop. Because as you said when we were just about to go into the break, it's counterintuitive to everything we seem to know about the world as human beings. Yeah, when that happens, you almost want to dismiss it in a certain way. I did, as a matter of yeah, fact. Yeah. When I first picked up a book on quantum physics, it was about 25 years ago, um, picked it up, started reading about things like Schrodinger's cat. And oh, yes. I, th I threw the book across the room. I said, this is absolute nonsense, right? Mm -hmm. I just could I refused to believe. I was totally Newtonian. Einstein, I can believe. Okay, uh, I could grab my head around that, about speed of light and as a, as a finite and things of that nature. But I could not get my head around uh, what I thought they were trying to describe in quantum physics. And now, does that imply that what you thought then they thought that you thought they were trying to describe is no longer what you think they're trying to describe? I had to understand it better, yes. Yeah. I, I think that they did a poor job of trying to explain quantum physics. Even though this stuff has been around for 100 years, quantum physics has been around since uh, at least, I think, 1909 or something like that. Another interesting Max thing about Planck, first quantum physics about is that so much symbolism has to be used to try to convey the idea so that we can understand it. And that's right. And that's where yeah. a lot of the problems come in. It's true. Symbolism, yeah. back that's to your right. words. That's stuff, exactly yeah. right. But having, I don't know, get more, gotten more knowledge myself about uh, physics and, and read some more about it, and I had to open my mind up to the possibility that what I thought to be the true nature of the universe, it being Newtonian, deterministic, pretty straightforward stuff, may be wrong. And when I delved again into philosophy, as I started to, to turn into philosophy in my, in my later years, um, I started to meld the two things together. My knowledge of, of physics, which is r very rudimentary, and my knowledge, again, rudimentary, of philosophy because I'm not an expert in either either of these fields, and I'll be the first to admit it. 
So I started to formulate the question not too long ago as, can there be an experimental study of the question bothering us a lot, and we talked about it on the show, free will versus determinism. And it seems like we're getting closer to saying that the answer to that is actually yes. Because when I'm starting to read about quantum physics, I'm, I'm looking at experiments, physical experiments, which defy what I consider to be my reality. The double, split ex, uh, double slit experiment, mm -hmm. where you uh, pass a beam of light through uh, a couple of slits and it forms a diffraction pattern behind it. That can only be explained using quantum physics. It cannot be explained in Newtonian terms. As a matter of fact, they not only use light waves to form these diffraction patterns in this double-slit experiment, and if, if you need more explanation about that experiment, just go online and, and read about it, because frankly... Well, that, that, that experiment a, has a lot to do with whether light was even a wave or a particle. Wave or right? a particle, and of course quantum physics... Uh, the Copenhagen interpretation of quantum physics says it's neither. <laughs> so, really? And Yeah, and there's another interpretation yeah, which I, basically says... It's both. Yeah. Because yeah. the particles can be part of the wave. Yeah. I don't know. What is it? it it's really, it's <laughs> really difficult to understand. But what I was going to say was that not only did he use light in the double slit experiment, they've actually found the diffraction pattern when they th throw atoms and uh, buckyballs, um, little carbon atoms, which are, I think, about 12 atoms big mm -hmm. through the double slits, and they form the same diffraction the same pattern patterns. And they're not light. They're particles, and yet they're behaving like waves. And you're going, wow, this is somewhat of a, more of a confirmation of quantum physics. As a matter of fact, quantum physics has to be accepted as being a way of describing the universe um, because it has been proven to be accurate like one part in a billion in way of describing things, especially at the, at the atomic level and the subatomic level when you come down into what they call Planck uh, units. Um, but before we continue, I just want to talk about what quantum means, just to set mm -hmm. the, the, the strain. This is actually bizarre as well. Um, well, then maybe we should skip it. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah, where's the break? On to the next subject. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like doing that sometimes right. with this, because like I said before, I cannot get my head around it to the extent that I'd like to, and I'd really like to study we this some more. weird here, Robert. Come on. Yeah. <laughs> Every, you know what? The, um, a Brief History of Time is... Uh, has been described as a best-selling book that nobody's ever read. Yeah, well, I read it, so maybe I'm... <laughs> I read it as well. Did you understand it? Uh, mostly, yes. I understood at least what he was trying to say, I think, yeah. in my own layman's terms. And Isn't again, I, I required a good level of symbolism to, to grasp it. Yeah. Well, Max Planck, I think, is just around the turn of the last century, discovered that physical action could not take on any indiscriminate value. There are some values that are actually forbidden in nature. Instead, the action must be some multiple of very of a very small quantity. And later, they would use the term quantum of action. Mm -hmm. um, and they call it now the Planck constant. Now, this inherent granularity, in other words, it's not um, smooth, it's, it's granular. It's, it's counterintuitive to everything we think of in the world today. Um, for example, if you want to turn up the thermostat, we can make it a little bit hotter, right? It's mm -hmm. gradually getting warmer and warmer. Or you go, you go gradually faster and faster when you're walking or in a car. Not so when you're talking about quantum physics. Things are discrete. You can go from this state to this state, but you cannot go There's in no between. There's no in-between is what that's you're saying. That's right. Now, that's when you're talking Everything about... Everything is like a flash moment, like a... 
instant in time. Uh, like a uh, movie, maybe, yeah. you know? Uh, but, the, but again, that, that's a, an image that we're using, a symbol, to try and represent something that right. does not exist that way physically. That's so right, that we can understand it. And I think that's what the problem is in trying to understand quantum physics. It is trying to get your head around the terminology, uh, look beyond the symbols that they're trying to use, and don't take them literally. Use them as, as an interpretation of reality, a way of which, trying which to predict not, reality. Which doesn't mean that you don't have an accurate understanding, by the way, if you don't take it literally, but still understand mm-hmm. it. That's right. Yeah. As a matter of fact, there is a, a field in, in quantum physics which basically says that, um, look, quantum physics uh, is just meant as a descriptor. It does not necessarily mean that the universe is um, in, in a quantum states, it means that that's what we use to accurately describe action what in the world. What you just said is almost verbatim what Ayn Rand said in the first section. She says, you know, this is not used to be the the thing. To it's not the concrete. It's the thing we use to discover the concrete. Yeah, yeah. And how we describe it. Yes. Uh, since its inception, and like I said, over over 110 years out a year ago, uh, actually the. F- when they, they discovered cathode rays, yeah. they, they, so it's like a first beginning of quantum mm-hmm. physics. No, they didn't necessarily call it quantum physics then. Okay. Uh, um, everything's counterintuitive, right? Um, and the results of quantum mechanics have provoked strong philosophic debate. And that's where I, that's where I uh, find my interest being piqued, is when they talk about an atom and an electron coming out of one state and appearing almost like magic somewhere else in the orbit around an, uh, an atom or a nucleus of an atom. I'm going, what is this nonsense? It's just in our inability to, to, to measure the speed and location of a particular electron at a particular time. It's not nature. Obviously, the atom's spinning around, but no, not necessarily. Because according to, uh, if it was Newtonian, an, a- an electron spinning around an, uh, an atom's nucleus would eventually fall into the nucleus. And by eventually, probably within a nanosecond. <laughs> so, in other words, matter couldn't exist without quanta. because yes, we always envisage it the way we see the planets. Yes. The sun in the center and, yes. and the little electrons going around it, which are the planets. Mm-hmm. And because we see that in nature, very naturally, we assume everything on a smaller level takes the same shape. Right. And that's where we get our image of quantum... I don't know, what would you call it, symbolism? <laughs> and it all has to do with symbolism. Uh, I, I took this because from Wikipedia I, I, I know what here. you mean. I, I remember learning that the proton was in the center and the mm-hmm. electrons went around. They made, and it represented by it balls. Like a little, like a little uh, solar system. Right, represented yeah. by balls. And unfortunately, when people think of that and they think of these balls, then they're looking at symbols. They're not looking at the real world. Yeah. Now, I got this from uh, Wikipedia. It says, the natural world, in the natural world, electrons normally remain in an uncertain, non-deterministic, smeared, probabilistic, wave-particle, wave-function, orbital path around or through the nucleus, defying classical electromagnetism. Yeah, so, in other words, they're not little balls circling around smaller balls or bigger balls. They are areas of probability. They are energy states in smeared... Right, which uh, increase as you walk across the carpet with your rubber shoes. <laughs> Is that how it works? Yep, you got it, Bob. Yeah. You understood a brief history of time just yeah. as much as I do. <laughs> and then you get that static shock when you hit the door or something. But the, th- but the point is, look, there's a lot of interpretations of uh, quantum theory. You have the Copenhagen interpretation, and you have the, um, the many worlds interpretation, where uh, some physicists actually postulate that absolutely everything that can occur has occurred and will occur 
in different universes. Well, that's certainly been the subject of some great science fiction. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, alternate you know, decisions and alternate universes and things like that. I think that the, uh, the jury's out on the nature of the universe. We're getting closer and closer. Um, if you remember Einstein, Einstein was very much opposed. Well, actually, he's one of the founders of quantum physics. But he was very much opposed to this whole idea of non-determinism. And he said, God does not play dice. But the more and more I read about quantum physics, I'm saying, God just might play dice. There might be a random element to it, but I think sometimes the dice are loaded, meaning that the outcome is predictable to a degree. Isn't the randomness limited to a certain sphere or a field of activity, whereas beyond that it's not random anymore? Isn't that, wasn't that the whole intent of that slit experiment and all that? I think that you're, you're, you're right in the sense that randomness or unpredictability is certainly at the at the uh, quantum level or, or at the atomic mm-hmm. or subatomic level. But once you start to get into things like people, objects, cows, buildings, you know, churches, then it's very predictable because all of those random things average out into something that is quite predictable. Observable and yeah. repeatable. Anyway, that's a rather heavy, uh, heavy subject, but I just wanted people out there that's to know that it is fascinating and I'm very much uh, into it. And I'd like to read more about it. And when we come back from this break, I'm going to a little bit, little bit more down to earth. We're talking about astronomy. <laughs> down to earth? Yes. Okay, we're going to... You got the joke. Okay, we'll be back right after this. Good evening. On any clear night, you will find amateur astronomers outdoors making observations, taking notes, and noting down what they see. Now, before we go any further, there are two things I want you to remember. First of all, astronomy is open to everyone. You don't need large, expensive telescopes. You can do a great deal with a naked eye or a pair of binoculars. And secondly, amateur work is really important. Amateurs do things professionals either don't want to do, can't do, or haven't got time to do. And uh, a great deal is learned from this. Today, I think amateur astronomy is more important than ever been before. Well, with me now are two professionals, Dr. Chris Rentos and Lucy Green. So it really is now a great time for the amateur. And he can delve everywhere. Even with all this spacecraft, even with all the data we can get from professional observatories, and even with access to that data by the internet, there's still a huge amount of space uh, for the kind of work that only amateurs can do. And as professional astronomers, I think it, we're unique amongst scientists in that we rely so heavily on collaboration with our amateur colleagues. Wherever you look, whether it's out into the distant universe, whether it's in our galaxy, or as you say, in the solar system, um, we really need people to help us sort through data and, and to make discoveries. I mean, you can see that, Lucy, in, in your field with the, with the sun. That's right. So my interest is in looking at solar activity. And after a really long, prolonged, um, quiet time, the activity is picking up. And we definitely need amateurs and professionals looking at the data. But also with the sun, we've had this interesting time where it's not necessarily been solar science that we've been working on. So the amateur community have discovered a huge number of comets in the SOHO data, in the Lasco coronagraphs, which look at the sun's atmosphere. I remember 1981 when the first comet was discovered to plunge into the sun 
They were very excited about that. And it turns out it happens all the time. There are, what, 2,000 discovered in the Soho images? Yeah, over 2,000 of the Kreutz family that have been discovered were present. And actually, we're talking about comets plunging into the sun, but I think another really exciting set of amateur discoveries have been a series of dark spots on Jupiter Ah, that they think have come from the impact of something rather like comets. I mean, we saw this in the early 90s with Schumacher-Levy 9, another very serious amateur discovery, this comet that split up and hit Jupiter and left behind this sequence of bruises and then just in the last couple of years people like Anthony Wesley who's a amateur observer down in Australia have started spotting these scars on Jupiter's surface mm. and so what we thought was a once in a few hundred year event uh, back when we saw Schumacher Levy 9 turns out to be something that happens every few years comets hitting the giant planets Now for a change, we're going to have a history lesson. Believe me, the history of astronomy is fascinating. And one man who knows as much as anybody is Dr. Alan Chapman. Welcome back, Alan. It's a delight to be back with you, Patrick. A great honour and a delight. Now, coming on to amateur astronomers, it's fair to say, isn't it, that um, in the early days, all the leading astronomers were amateurs. Absolutely true, and not just in the early days. I would say until about not much more than a hundred years ago. Yes, all right. In the past, if you wanted to do scientific research, not just in astronomy, but in all sorts of other sciences as well, you had to pay for it yourself. So you have brewers, great clergy, aristocrats, doctors, working lawyers, but you also have, and I find quite a lot of these, working men astronomers ah, who really did ordinary jobs. What do you think drove those early amateurs to do this painting? Intellectual curiosity yeah. and oh, yes. a love of learning and also too, I think in many cases, a deep faith. The wish to find out. The wish to find out and also a love of technology. Astronomers have always been concerned with making things, and as we all know, astronomy is a deeply technological science. You can't just go out there and make fundamental discoveries in optics or cosmology. Just with the naked eye, you need instruments. And every generation, instrumentation is getting better. Right from Thomas Harriot, an mm. amateur himself, who in 1609 first observed the moon through a telescope. Of course, many of those early observers made their own telescopes. Really, so, yeah, I mean, yeah, I, yeah. I could never do that. They I, had to. I'm completely hopeless. I don't, they had to do. I don't know if you could make your own telescope, Patrick. <laughs> I did once. I made, I made a telescope. It wasn't very good. <laughs> <laughs> I, I never even tried. The word amateur, of which they were deeply proud in the past, is a Latin word. The word amat. It means to love. Really? It means those who love what they're doing. It doesn't mean men in sheds, as we often think nowadays, mm. but lovers. And Sir John Herschel proclaimed himself to be an amateur, because I am a lover of astronomy. I would like to ask both of you, uh, actually, but you first, Patrick. What do you, do you think there will always be a place for the amateur in astronomy? I'm absolutely certain of it. You'll find, once again, the amateurs lead the way. 
And that, of course, was Sir Patrick Moore on his very famous and lengthy show, The Sky at Night. And I say lengthy because it has the record of being the longest aired show with the same presenter. 55 years oh. Patrick Moore has been doing that show, over 705 episodes, and he only plays it once a month. 705 episodes, 55 years. You can actually actually have some recordings of his shows back in the 60s. He started it before I was born. (laughs) And he's still doing it. That show, I think, was just uh, aired about uh, last month or this month. I'm not sure which one it is. But um, it had to do, of course, with amateur astronomers. And I'd have to say that I am one of those as well. I remember being a a young boy, always always fascinated with uh, astronomy. Um, Never had the means until recently, of course, to afford any sort of astronomical instruments that could... um, that could view deep sky objects, but I do now have uh, a very nice telescope, which I I try to look at the sky as much as I can with it. Um, But I was always fascinated by that particular show and that particular man because he is probably um, the individual more responsible for bringing uh, uh, people, mostly British, of course, because that's where where he lives, South Britain, um, into uh, the field of astronomy. And... um, Chris Lintot is another astrophysicist who co-hosts the show with him. And somebody, people out there might know, Brian May often appears as a co-host as well. Brian May, the guitarist from Queen, (laughs) who is an astrophysicist. Wow. As a matter of fact, he um, actually uh, had a couple of papers published and was just about to do his Ph.D. in astrophysics when, unfortunately, he became famous. Oh, I was going to say, where does he get his funding from? <laughs> He's very wealthy. But yes, um, Queen, Queen uh, took off, and he uh, put aside his um, star hopping uh, and uh, went with Queen. And then he just, oh, until recently, like four or five years ago, finished his Ph.D. in astrophysics. No kidding. Yeah, and he appears on that show sometimes. Obviously still a passion. Yeah. Now, I only bring this up because there's a couple of things that are happening in the uh, the skies, and I just wanted to let everybody know out there that I'm going to be looking for these particular things, and I hope that they will as well. And that is, on June 5th, there is a remarkable event, the transit of Venus. Venus uh, will move in front of the sun. Now, here in London, we'll be able to see it, um, clouds willing, of course, just before sunset. We won't be able to see it all because the sun would have gone down below the horizon, but we can catch the beginning of it and about half of it before uh, it moves out of sight. That's That kind of a, an event doesn't happen again until 2117, 105 years from now. So this is your last now chance. The event is what exactly? The planet Venus passing directly in front of the sun? In, directly in front of the sun. So if you've got a proper solar filter, which I do on, on your telescope, you can actually see the disk, the black disk of Venus mm-hmm. moving in front of the, the face of the, the sun. So that's a fascinating thing. Also... I'm surprised on, it's that rare. I thought it would have been... You know. It is. Actually, it happened eight years prior, mm-hmm. eight years ago, and then uh, now, and then won't happen for another 105 years, and then eight years after that. Okay. It's a very it's in- interesting strange thing. Way the two, it's only been uh, six of them in recorded history. No kidding. Yeah. On May 5th, 6th, the, uh, we have a full moon occurring at the exact same day and hour of its closest approach to Earth. So on May 5th and 6th, look for a very large full moon. I always find the moon very fascinating. One of the fascinating things Sometimes about it, it is that... it looks like it's blown up or something. It, yes. You know? Well, that's only an atmospheric effect. Yes. You know that, eh? But uh, what I find fascinating about it, having looked at the planets, and planets, when you look at them through a telescope, they look like orbs. They're like three-dimensional, you know. 
um, the parts at the top and the bottom or around the edges are fuzzier than what's in the center. But you don't get that effect with the moon. I don't know. I, I didn't really think about it until I read an article recently in, uh, I think it was this Astronomy or Sky News uh, mm-hmm. just last, which said that it has to do with the actual nature of the powder on the, on the face of the moon, the way it reflects the light. And, of course, there's no atmosphere. It looks, just looks like a pie plate up there in the sky. And I look at that quite often. It's a very fascinating object. Also, there's a comet in the sky, Comet Garad. Uh, right now, it's in links up in the north, northwest. And um, if you've got a good pair of binoculars or a telescope, most likely, in a dark sky, you can see Comet Garad. And also, there's a solar eclipse on May 20th. So, um, it'll be visible just before sunset, and only about 18% of it will have occurred. 18% of the sun will, will have uh, be covered by the moon just before it disappears under the under the horizon for here in London or Toronto. I've always found with solar eclipses that it almost has to be complete before you really even notice it getting dark. That You know you're true. That's right. I remember... Even, even if there's just a, an edge of, of the sun showing over the moon, it's still bright out. This is an annular eclipse, so it won't cover it totally when it does become uh, a total um, or, or full. But I remember an annular eclipse many, many years ago and how I... I was fascinated because I'd look at the shadows of the leaves on the ground and they started to sort of blur. I mean, um, almost become double, double mm-hmm. shadows. Ah. I mean, that's fascinating. Anyway, some really interesting things happening in the sky in the next uh, few weeks. So keep an eye to the sky when, uh, with the proper filter, I'll have of course. i get my binoculars out and not point them at the sun because I don't have that filter. No, <laughs> don't eat with the filter. Otherwise, we won't be seeing anything else <laughs> for a long, long time. Anyway, that's well, the show for today. I think so. So join us again next week when we'll continue our journey in the right direction. Until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right. Be right back color, here. See you. Color into black and white. When people say that Superman is faster than a speeding bullet, do they really have to use the word speeding? (laughs) Hey, I just saw this guy is faster than a bullet. Oh, you mean like a bolt I gently toss across the room? No, a speeding bullet. (laughs) I'm sorry, I should have clarified.